1 John, verses 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we, are, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This is the word of God. You may be seated. This portion of scripture always reminds me of a certain song. Go ahead and play that. For those of you who may not have heard it, we're going to let it play a little bit. <laughs> I keep trying to find a light on my own apart. Oh boy, is Facebook and YouTube going to play us? Or... I am the king of excuses. I've got one for every selfish thing I do. I don't know about you guys, but that sounds like camp, convention, human videos, um, high school bands um, from when I was growing up. I remember when the Lord first saved me, um, I remember friends telling me about this uh, band. They sounded just like Nirvana. Then I heard them and I found out my friends were liars. But I still like the song. I still like the band, DC Talk. They had a, their, that was their song. It's based here in 1 John chapter, um, chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. Um, for this is the message we have heard from him to proclaim to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You know what's sad about this? Is one of the people you just heard singing this is walking in darkness today. In a little bit, I'm going to talk about the worst kind of deception is self-deception. That you can read the words of the scripture and still deceive yourself. Kevin Max, to this day, will, will sing about a universal Christ. It's another Christ. Another Christ is another gospel. And Paul in Galatians chapter 1 says, if we, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you another gospel, let him be anathema or eternally condemned. We can think that we are walking in the light when we are truly walking in darkness. There is no limit to the amount of self-deception that we can employ. One thing I liked about that song was that kind of desperation in it, which is, I want to be in the light as you are in the light. I experienced this in the physical sense this last Thursday. Um, I'm training for a marathon October um, 15th, and um, I had my 20-mile. If you, Those of you who've ran a marathon before, you know the 20-mile one. That's the really, really important one. And it takes at least three hours to do for me because I'm not super fast. And Friday was going to be cold and rainy. I'm like, oh, pneumonia. No, thanks. So I guess after office time on Thursday, I'm going to need to run. But when I run like that, I'm chasing the light. I'm, try, I'm chasing the sun to try to stay in the light as long as possible. And, and I, I hate to admit this because it makes me sound like such a weenie. But um, part of the reason is when I'm running on the trail, this, especially this last time, I saw the remains of a deer. So that says to me, there's probably coyotes somewhere around. <laughs> and I think I could take one coyote. I don't think I can take 10. So I'm like, I want to be in the light. That desperation of being the light, because I know the light is where there is safety. I know in the light is where I can really see what is going on. In darkness, things are obscured. 
We have here in verse 5 uh, that this is the message that we have heard from him. John is reminding his audience he saw the risen Christ. He knew Jesus. He touched Jesus. He heard him with his ears. He saw him with his eyes. Verse 5, John remembers his readers that he and others heard directly from Jesus Christ. And he summarized that in this statement, God is light. Before going, before going into what that means, let me say that the inverse is not true. Light is not God. I know that's a duh thing. We don't worship photons, right? Because that's what light is. We don't worship photons. However, when we read further in John, and we hear that God is love, so many people want to worship love. And they want to define love by the way they want to define love. Completely forget about how God defines love. I'm going to say what loving is. In fact, you could probably just take several of these verses, reword them, put them in any Christian publication, and you'll hear people say, that's not very Christ-like. People want to worship that. We don't worship light. We have the question posed by the great philosopher Hathaway, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. Um, I'll be talking about that more when we get to that part that says God is love. But what does it mean that God is light? Well, it means that he's not just light. He's not just love. But what does it mean? What is this metaphor of light? What is, it, what is John getting at here? John uses quite a lot of this metaphor of God being light in his letters, in his gospel of John. Of course, the reason for this is because Jesus did, because Jesus used the same metaphor as well. There are many ways Jesus Christ is compared to light, but here are just three of them. Once again, there's many, but here are just three. One, he is glorious like light is. He is glorious like light is. On the Mount of Transfiguration, um, James and John and Peter come with Christ to this part. And all of a sudden, they see behind the, the veil. They see who Jesus really is. And it says, his faith, face shone like the sun, and his, cla- and his clothes became white as light. No wonder John uses such a word for Jesus Christ. I said last week, a person who's encountered the risen Lord, a person who's encountered Jesus Christ, they can't be bullied. They can't be bought. They can't be, they can't be persuaded for anything other than this one thing that they have seen Jesus Christ. And God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. It means that he is holy. For this, we only have to look at verse 5, that in him there is no darkness at all. There is none like him. All have darkness except him. That's why, this is why particularly that there is a hell, because darkness cannot reside beside light. Light dispels darkness. Three, light reveals. We all probably know John 3.16 but if we continue reading in, John, in John's gospel, chapter 3, we get to verse 19. And something very interesting to say about why people don't like Jesus. Really, we could explain this is why Jesus was crucified. Verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Out of context, put that in on Twitter. And you'll find a lot of people being like, that's really judgmental. That's not very Christ-like. Lady, Jesus said it. (laughs) Oh, you're saying people love evil? Yes, they do. And you, before you knew Christ, also loved evil. You know, there's something deep in this too, that even other cultures understood that if you actually had a righteous person come into this world, they'd be killed. In Plato's Republic, it talks about the righteous man. This might blow your mind, actually. And in Plato's Republic, you know, completely different cultures, completely different times, it talks about the righteous man, that if the righteous man would reveal himself, he'd be crucified. So Jesus tells Nicodemus, that's John chapter 3, we have verse 16, but verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Naturally, people hate the light. Most, actually everyone before they know Christ, knew Christ, were in the kingdom of darkness. They see only gloom and trust to the darkness to give them happiness. 
but great joy is found here. Isaiah 9-2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep, deep darkness, a light has dawned. I love that word picture for Christ coming into this world. That without Christ, it's just darkness, it's just gloom. There are things that give you momentary happiness, but when they're gone, the, the despair comes all the more. But on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. This morning, I was out in the dark. I woke up, it was dark out, and I went out, had my cup of coffee, I had my cats out there, and I preached my message to the cats before I preached to you. And not literally, I just preach it to the, I, 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 I preach it to the Lord, but my cats are out there, and one day, Buddy's going to get saved. But anyway, <laughs> it's dark out. And, but I can, all of a sudden I start seeing light before the sun comes up, right? Everybody does. Before the dawn comes, you know that there's something about to happen. Now, of course, there was trees and stuff blocking there. One time I, when I was in Hawaii, I was running along the shore and I could see the light. Then all of a sudden the sun breaks out from the water. That's Christmas. That's Christmas in the heart of the unbeliever. A light has dawned. No longer will I run in the darkness wondering whether or not the crabs are huge spiders or not. I can see finally. For the sake of unity, many will make compromises with darkness. Verse 5 says there is no compromises between light and dark. In him there is light, there is no darkness. He is light, there is no darkness. Compromises, they don't start big. It's one compromise after another. We think we have to do these things for a variety of reasons. We know that they are wrong. But if we want to be in fellowship with God, if we want to be in true fellowship with each other, we remember he is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Verses 6 through 10 make up the body of my message. They're going to make up the, once again, they're going to make up the body of this message today. There are five statements, all starting with conjunctions. Remember conjunctions, schoolhouse rock? Conjunction, junction, what's your function? (laughs) These are conjunctions starting with if. So they are conditional conjunction statements. And before you fall asleep, let me just say, it's like, it's just really neat because John strings these five sentences together. It's almost poetic the way he does it. In fact, if it was originally written in English, we'd probably call it a poem because we have three couplets that make up the body of what John is about to speak on about light and darkness. The first couplet would be walking in darkness or walking in light. The second, walking by illusion or walking by clarity. And the third one, walking blind or walking with sight. Let's get into this. By the way, you may not always be here. You might move on to some other place, go to a church. If you go to a church and the pastor starts preaching and he doesn't say things like, open up your Bible, turn to this verse, go find a different church. It's not a church that you should be a part of because it's not a church that preaches the word. It's a TED Talk. I mean, I got a lot of things I'd love to share with you guys that I think are really wise, but you shouldn't care. Who cares what I think? Let's, let, let's see what God says. Starting in verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. We walk in darkness. Walking in darkness. Have you ever had the experience where you wake up and forget where you are and it's pitch black? Many of us probably had this experience when we were growing up and we were little kids. We couldn't last the entire movie, so we'd fall asleep and our parents would pick us up and tuck us into our bed. And you wake up sometime, you're like, how did I get here? I haven't really had that experience, but I've had a different experience. When me and Becca were dating, I had my own apartment, and my apartment was kind of neat in that I didn't control the heat. Um, the, the, the beauty salon below me did, and then I had supplemental heating in my bedroom. My, my bedroom had no windows, so I turned out the lights. It's pitch black. Here's the thing with supplemental heating, is that if you're turning it on so you can go to bed, you fall asleep, and it just keeps going. So at three o'clock in the morning, I wake up and I am sweating. It is so hot and I hate, hate being hot when I'm trying to sleep. And I can't find anything. I can't find the switch. I am so glad I'm not going to hell where there's darkness and fire. (laughs) It is a terrifying experience. I do not want to walk in the dark. I want to walk in the light. Walking in darkness, but thinking we're in the light. In Glenn Barker's commentary on 1 John, he quickly points out that John's opponents 
The one that John is referencing who are walking in darkness, they do not believe they are walking in darkness. No one does. They believe they're walking in the light. This is confrontational. This is revealing to people who think I'm walking in the light that you're actually walking in darkness. There's a concept that John will explore later on that theologically we call it pseudodelphi, which means false brethren, meaning there are people who say that they are Christians who are in the church and they live their life a moral life, but they are never truly Christ. In fact, Jesus will say that on the day of judgment, there will people who come to him and they will say, Lord, Lord, did we not? And they give their list of qualifications, casting out demons, healing the sick, raising the dead. And he'll say, away from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. John is convinced, trying to convince those who are walking in darkness, walking in darkness, that they are not in fact walking in the light, but they are far from God. They would say that they are walking in light. So many in our day as well, they are deceived. They, they, they are deceived or they are backslidden. It's a dangerous place to be in because how do you know which is which? Many people today, they're saying they're deconstructing, but maybe what they're truly doing is revealing that they never were in Christ in the first place. Deconstructing is basically, and the idea behind it, which is to examine your faith and making sure you're in the faith, great. But what ends up happening with this is people start becoming critical of the faith. And they start finding a faith that's okay with all the things that they think they are and want to do. This is revealing that they are walking in darkness, but they think that they are walking in light. When we talk about this concept, in fact, this is something I was wrestling through this whole week in First John and the second half of the first chapter, is who is this written to? Is it written to believers or unbelievers? And I think both. I really do think both, because I think there's an application for both. For the believer, believers that are um, that are in the that think they are in the light but are not, but um, that they are walking in darkness and therefore have broken fellowship with God, but believing that they are close to Him, this is sad. Believers and unbelievers live live in darkness differently. An unbeliever makes a God or a Jesus in their own mind that they worship. And that is good with, their, with the way, the choices that they have made. They are arrogant and believe that they are right with God, the universe, or whatever else. The believer, on the other hand, who is starting to walk in darkness, they may try to defend themselves. They may try to, they may try to get angry at these things, but they are not happy. They are not comfortable in their rebellion. You can tell this by the way that they, that they defend themselves is that they're trying to convince themselves and they know that there is no convincing. It's the difference between a repentant heart and an unrepentant heart. For an example of this, let's look at the first two kings of Israel. We have Saul and David. Saul did what was evil in the Lord's eyes. He, he believed he could bribe God with sacrifice, but the prophet Samuel tells him, God desires obedience, not sacrifice. And God rejects Saul. God rejects Saul, and then God gives a destructive spirit to Saul to give him headaches. And Saul doesn't repent. In fact, he gets violent, murderous against anybody who would say against him anything at all that maybe, maybe you're being a bit hard on David. And he tries to spear his own son to the wall. Now let's look at the second king, King David. A man after God's own heart. King David had a period in his life where he was distant from the Lord because of sin. He sees a woman bathing and he decides, even though she's married, I want her to be mine. That's Bathsheba. He has her husband killed. He lives this way for a period of time. And then the prophet comes in. The prophet comes in. He gives him a parable and he says, you're the man. You know what's interesting about that story? That story has repeated itself throughout history. You know what ends up happening to the prophet? They disappear. They get killed. They get executed. Put on fire. Their head shoved in a, a vat of burning oil. Actually, that was one in, in, in Irish history. In fact, King Henry VIII, big guy, had a lot of wives. Henry VIII, I am. VIII, I am, I am. There was a priest who comes into him and tells him he'll die the death of Ahab in that the dogs will lick up his blood. And he has that man. He just disappears. David doesn't disappear. Nathan 
he repents. And we have Psalm 51 as evidence. You know what? So when you read Psalm 51, get in the right state of mind of a person who realizes that he's lost something he didn't know that he lost it. And he is desperate to get it back. That he would rather lose the kingdom, his own life, to get back fellowship with God. And that that was more precious than all other things. And he'll say, against you and you alone have I sinned. That wasn't David trying to get out of the responsibility. He is saying, against you have I committed adultery. Against you have I killed the God of the universe. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit in me. That is the major difference between two people who are walking in darkness, between a believer and an unbeliever. Fellowship with God, even a believer can live in a period of rebellion, but it's not pleasant. His or her motives for getting out of it are also much different because it's not about avoiding the consequences, but it's about regaining the sweet fellowship with God that they had from the beginning. Verse 7, walking in the light. That's the second half of the couplet. Don't walk in darkness. Second, walk in the light. Verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. When me and Becca were first married, we had different schedules and different days. One of us would have to wake up much earlier than the other. And you had a choice at this point in time. Either one, you got your clothes out and ready before the night before. And so you can let the other person sleep, and not, or you can just turn on the light and find your stuff and wake up the other person. Yeah, you, there was different benefits, detriments. You know, if you didn't wake up, if you didn't the night before get your clothes ready, and you had to pick out your clothes in the darkness, dark blue looks a lot like black. And sometimes I went to Target with different, two different colors socks. The light helps us see. You know what's interesting? All you see is light. You know this? You don't, you don't see me right now. You see light bouncing off of me. Your eyes are photoreceptors. They just see light and how light bounces off of things. This is what C.S. Lewis to say, is that, that God is like the sun. That I don't see anything without the sun. I don't see anything clearly without the son of God, Jesus Christ. Walking in the light. Once again, um, once again, Getting changed in the dark is a hard thing. You much rather get changed in the light. This is the origin of fellowship. Last week um, in the intro, I talked about fellowship, koinonia in the church. It's a close connection and pairing and intimate association. Verse 7, John says, How do we have fellowship with one another? We walk in the light. We walk in the truth together. Letting Christ's light shine on the area that maybe we don't want to acknowledge but we do so, and in that we have fellowship with him and with each other because of the blood of Christ. And that's the key to, that's the key to unity in the church. It's not about anything. It's not about having the same opinion on what we should, we should have done with the landscaping or the new equipment or the color of the carpet or even being in agreement. We can constantly butt heads, but we can still be unified because we're unified because of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's powerful to think, right? I was at a funeral yesterday of a dear saint, it was, it was actually the um, father of the pastor from Grace Church. And so there was ample evidence that this man was a believer. And I love going to these funerals, not because I'm morose or anything like that. It's just, this is, this is like, when it's a believer, you're introducing the bride to the bridegroom. And at a funeral of a, of a saint, I will always say something similar to this, which is, goodbye, brother or sister, I will see you again when we are in our father's house. And I didn't know this guy at all. But all of a sudden, I have this deep connection because the blood of Christ ties us to one another. The blood of Christ is what cleanses us from sin. And we can truly stand on that. You know, in most of my sermons, I don't know if you noticed this, but when I start talking about how we've missed the mark about sin and things like this, most of the time I try to use myself for an example. And I don't feel self-conscious by it because I truly believe the blood of Christ has covered my sins. And I'm not going to stand on my own righteousness because I know I have nothing to stand on. It is the blood of Christ that binds us together. It's the blood of Christ. I do this because the community of believers should be characterized by confession. 
The blood of Christ has truly cleansed us from all sin, even the sin we commit against each other. Fellowship breaks down in darkness. In this verse, John gives three, in this uh, section, John gives three false teachings. That's at the beginning of each, of each couplet of false teachings, um, that darkness breaks down fellowship. Fellowship with each other, and most importantly, fellowship with God. Have you ever had a good friend who fell away or backslid? A friend who's in the Lord, maybe a best friend, and they either fall away or they backslide. All of a sudden, something's different between the two of you, right? And this is heartbreaking for me. I went to Bible college. And there are a whole lot of people I went to Bible college with, friends, who aren't believers today. And I'll talk with them. It's one of the most awkward experiences in the world. In fact, sometimes they try to bring up things that we've said in the past, and I have no interest because I know the Spirit isn't there anymore. What bound us together, the most important thing, it's not there anymore. Conversely, if you have a friend or a relative that you've been close to, and all of a sudden they become a believer, all of a sudden you have a closer fellowship than you've ever had before. My, uh, my physical brother, whose name is Brent, and I was hoping the Owens were going to be here because Brent Owen, his older brother's name is Jason. That's kind of, first time I talked about my brother Brent, I think Brent Owen thought I was talking about him. And he was like, no, I didn't grow up with you. My, my, my brother, my physical brother Brent, um, lo- I love him. We've been close for years. In this last couple years, the Lord has done such a powerful work in his life that we are brothers now in two cents and closer than ever before closer than ever before because the blood of christ binds us together as as our physical blood relation couldn't in verse 8 walking by illusion verse 8 if we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves no sin here meaning not a sinful nature i don't sin i'm perfect if we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us that is self-deception Verse 8 lets us know that deception comes from ourselves. You may have heard of people with paranoid schizophrenia and the powerful audio and visual hallucinations that they, that they suffer through. There's a movie in 2001 called A Beautiful Mind. It's based on the real-life story of the mathematician John Nash, who's credited with coming up with game theory. It's a sad story because he suffers through this, and he believes that his hallucinations are real. Sorry to tell you this if you like the movie, but the movie really gets a lot of stuff wrong. His life was a lot harder than what you see on TV, see on the movies. He was constantly believing that there were government men coming after him all the time. And I could go into this. In, in the movie, there's this one scene that's really kind of almost horrific in that he has his infant son, he's giving him a bath, and he believes that his friend from college, who doesn't really exist, is watching his son bathe like making sure bathing his son. His wife come home and freaks out because the boy's almost drowned to death. Living by illusion, believing something's real when it's not real, is dangerous. We know that, we know that absolutely in the physical. It's much more dangerous in the spiritual. In the spiritual, it's a person who believes, I am living a moral life. God owes me salvation to come to the end of their life and say, I've been a church person all my life. I have not done these things. And for God to say, away from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. Self-deception is dangerous. It is deadly. Verse 8 gets down to where this darkness comes from. It's self-deception. A willful ignorance We used to talk about people who had rose-colored glasses, that they see the world in a rose-colored tint. I don't have rose-colored glasses. I do have a MetaQuest. That's a virtual reality thing. And um, it is dangerous when you don't realize what's around you and you have an illusion of what you think is around you. One one night, Becca's making supper, and I'm uh, I'm playing this boxing game, and I'm Apollo Creed, and I'm fighting Ivan Dranko. So it's like the rematch that we didn't get to see in the movies. And I got I got Ivan on the ropes, and I'm pummeling him. Little did I know, I had moved too close to the edge, and there was a wall in front of me instead of Ivan's face. And I punched the wall, and I think I yelled. No, I didn't. I'm too manly for that. I just a, a manly growl in surprise. <laughs> because I believe something was there that wasn't. 
The worst deception is self-deception. To begin with the spirit, then try to justify yourself with the flesh. Dodd, in his commentary on this, in uh, his book, Joining the Epistles, pages 21 and 22, talks about the ideology that John is fighting against here. He quotes, um, quote from him, Christians have been given a new nature superior to other men. Christians are already sinless beings. Let me read that again. Christians are already sinless beings. Or if not all Christians, at least those who have attained to spiritual enlightenment. Yikes. This is the belief that I am better than those, those heathen sinners. You know who had an attitude like that? The Pharisee. Jesus gave a story about a Pharisee and a tax collector. The tax collector just couldn't even look to heaven and says, have mercy on me, God, a sinner. And the Pharisee beats his chest and says, thank you, God, I'm not like other men, like this guy over here. As believers, we still don't get to do that because Jesus said he is the vine, we are the branch, and apart from him, we can do what? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing apart from him and his continued work in our life. We are like others. We are in constant need of the grace of God. It is his Holy Spirit that produces fruit in our life, not through our own works. I am pretty good at that boxing game. I have beaten Ivan Draco as, as, as many different characters. Um, never lays a, ga- a glove on me, but I would have to be out of my mind to challenge Manny Pacquiao to a match. I probably wouldn't survive it. Others live by similar delusions that they think that their sin is, no, is, is nothing, that it doesn't reach their soul or their heart. The being without sin, that means the capacity to sin. The person with their head held high who says, I would never do anything like that. You know when the devil hears you say, I would never do anything like that? He gets on his boxing gloves and licks his lips and asks God, let me at him. I'm your, I'm your huckleberry. Robert Machane said, the seed of every sin known to man is in my heart. And I can't tell you how many people have been in my office and they start off their story with this. I never thought I would do anything like this. I was the one who told other people not to. To believe you are without sin, you have to believe one of two very false things. Either one, you believe that your sin does not reach your soul. That sin stays in the flesh. That the, this, is a fancy way, this is a fancy way of saying it. The way most people will say it is the way the bachelorette, by the way, I don't watch that show. I just saw this quote. Stop judging me. Um, he said this, I had sex and God still loves me. She didn't mean that look how loving and gracious my God is. She meant that, she meant it as God doesn't care who I sleep with. I am without sin. Or two, you believe your sin is a virtue. This is much more common, even in Christian circles. When we start touching on your sin, all of a sudden you get angry. When we talk about the sins of other people, not a big deal. You don't smoke, pastor, rail against smokers, please. Oh, but I have a glass of Chardonnay every now and again. Don't, don't, don't touch on that. I get drunk on the weekends. Don't touch on that. The current obsession right now with sexualities and all of these things Most people don't care what the Bible says, what God says, what God even thinks about it. It's my virtue. And anything, any person, any God who says differently, they believe is in the dark, even though they themselves are the ones who are in the dark. We can walk by illusions or we can walk by clarity. Verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is such a precious verse. And we we regulate it to when we first got saved. It is precious for you today. It is so precious for you today. Let me get into it. Truth and lies. You know, I've never had surgery, not real surgery. Like I've never been put out and, and had somebody operate on me. I find that to be terrifying. If you have a surgery coming up, I hope I'm not freaking you out or anything. 
But it's like, they, the, the doctor says, okay, we're going to pump you with chemicals, and hopefully you don't die, and hopefully you're not just awake, unable to say, hey, that hurts. That's terrifying. But let me tell you something. If I had cancer, I would not want to hear from my doctor that I needed surgery. But if my doctor just kept his mouth shut and let me waste away with the cancer, guy's an evil man. No, I need to know. I need to know clearly what's going on. And even if it's something that scares me, if it's for my good, I need that. There's been a lot of debate about this verse in particular on whether it is for believers or unbelievers. If this verse did not, did not have uh, the context around it, especially later on in John, I would think absolutely only for the unbeliever. And it'd be great just to put in evangelism and forget after that. However, based on the way John addresses those he's writing to, both before and after this, as my little children, as the beloved, it seems that there is something here for the believer as well. That confession is not just what we did at the beginning to get saved, and now we move on from this. But no, it is the groundwork that has been laid that we, as we have our sin, now we we confess our sin differently before we knew Christ than after we knew Christ. But now that after we know Christ, we still deal with sin in the flesh. Martin Luther called this state, Simul Justus Eta Precator. It means both saint and sinner. That we are truly justified before Christ, truly bought by his blood, but we are still warring against our flesh. We can still, in a way, walk in darkness, but not truly walk in darkness because the light is in our life. It's like we forget who, we've been, who we are. It's forget who bought us. Confession. Confession for the believer reminds us of what God has done in our life. It reminds us that he's cleansed us from all unrighteousness, and he truly has. That we no longer have to hold that. Confession here, St. Augustine said it like this. He said, he who confesses condemns his sin. Um, condemns his sin. He is already acting with God. God condemns thy sin. If thou dost condemn them, thou art linked unto God. You know that's a genuine quote because we got dost and thou and all these things. Um, Let me tell you, let me unpack that for you. Confession, the word confess, it's homo logos. Homo, same. Logos, word, it's to have the same word. When we confess, it's not just like, God, I'm sorry I double parked and I lied to my mom and all these things. It's to speak of my sin the way Christ speaks of my sin, the way God speaks of my sin. Can I tell you how I confess in my own personal prayer life? This is how I confess. Let's say I I lied. I know I lied. God, I know that there is no lie in you. I know that when I said that, I was acting like the devil. And that even that lie drove you to the cross. And that every drop of blood is my fault because of that lie. This is the idea that we are speaking in concert with God. That is the fellowship we have. Those of you who are maybe more musically inclined, it's like singing in harmony. Of course, our part we don't do as well as God does. In fact, I saw a video this week, and I should, have loaded, I should have had them loaded up. But this person's uh, neighbor had their car alarm go off. You know how annoying that is, right? And you just want to scream, turn it off. Bah, 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 bah. The guy takes out his keyboard, and he starts making it into this beautiful song. That's really talented. I was, I was, I was, I was watching this, and I started getting like, misty-eyed. Uh, and I'm like, because this is what the Holy Spirit does in my life. I come to God because none of, our, none of our confession, none of our repentance is perfect. This is what the Holy Spirit does. Because we do not know how we ought to pray, he prays for us. And he turns our, our however it is, into a beautiful sympathy to the, symphony to the Father's ears. That's what confession does. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We talk about the grace and mercy of God a lot. Mercy is that God doesn't give us the just punishment which we worked for, and grace is that he gives us the blessing we have not worked for. Then, then how in verse 9 can it say that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us? How can the righteous God forgive sinners and still be considered just? 
It's because for the believer, he is already forgiven. The blood of Christ has already been paid, has paid the penalty. And for the unbeliever, they have entered into this fellowship when they confess their sins. He is just to forgive your sins because the shed blood of Jesus Christ has paid your penalty. As we get further into chapter 2, we talk about the mechanics of that. You know, there is the last line of verse 9 is so fantastic and amazing, many plainly just don't believe it. The idea that God can and will forgive is not so much of a hurdle, but the idea that he can truly cleanse you from unrighteousness is. Maybe some of you have a past. Well, we all have a past, right? Do you still carry the shame of that past? Now, you should have sorrow, right, over our sin and the confidence that God gives, but are you carrying the shame of your past? It was paid for and bought on the cross. Why are you holding on to what he paid for? Why are you holding on to it? You know what happens in unforgiveness? When, when, I, when I don't forgive you for, 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 for hurting me, like let's say, you know, we have the teens over, they, they break my arcade machine, and I hold it against them, and I never forgive them. And I know that they've been forgiven by God. I say to the cross of Christ, I say, not enough. Not enough. The blood of Christ is just not enough. You know what happens when we don't forgive ourselves? We hold on. When we read that verse and we're like, God hasn't cleansed me of my unrighteousness, I have to hold on to that. We look at the blood of Christ and I say, not enough. You are wounded for my transgressions, I need to be wounded too. But he truly does cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You think I have to carry the shame of my actions? No, you don't. Christ carried that too. That too was nailed on the cross with him. Stop taking it back. In verse 10, the ending of chapter 1. If we say we have not sinned, these are individual sins, we make him a liar and his word is not in, in us. Will a person call God a liar? Absolutely. In case we miss it here, the Holy Spirit reiterates through John in verse 10, in the strongest possible language, you think you haven't sinned? You're calling God a liar. Why? Because he said you have. The Ten Commandments say so. The New Testament teachings say all have sinned and fallen short of the, excuse me, of the glory of God. The cross of Christ speaks of how incredibly vile you really are and how loved you couldn't possibly hope to be. No, Pastor Jason, I'm one of the good people. You're calling God a liar. It's a willful blindness. I came across a story a number of years ago. Shocked me, and I'm not very easily shocked. It shocked me because there was rational adults in here and not just craziness. But this, this lady, she felt like she identified with the blind community so much. She had working eyes, 20-20 vision. But she loved working with blind people, teaching Braille and everything. So her counselor, whatever he, the charlatan wanted to call himself, helped her pour bleach into her eyes and blind herself. I read about, I read about this in some mainstream news thing. So I, I go to all the different journals I know of in the psychology and counseling community because I want to hear one person condemn this heinous act. Because you know what happened if I preached on Matthew about how if your eye causes you to sin to gouge it out and I gave you a sharpened spoon? Every place would carry that story but no place was carrying this story. How willfully blind are we? The person who says, I have not sinned, calls God a liar. They are willfully blind, and the truth is not in them. Matthew 6, 23. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? There are many people who believe, no, I, I don't sin, I have not sinned. Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, was asked in an interview one time if she believes in the concept of sin. The interviewer said it, more words than that, but said, do you believe that there are sins? This was her response. I think the greatest sin in the world is bringing children into the world. And she goes on to say that our disabled that are going to be criminals. You know, criminals, life has value. So much value. 
And Christ died for them, right? But if you don't believe Christ died for anybody, right? Who do you throw him in the trash? Who cares? What I thought was really interesting about that, though, she automatically goes to something that she doesn't have to deal with, right? At this time in her in her life, she's past childbearing age, so all she's thinking about is sins of others, not sins in herself, because she's without sin. I pray for her sake that she changed her mind, that the Holy Spirit changed her mind before she died. Because the light in her was darkness. How great was that darkness? Through the window of her darkness, so much pain and suffering has entered this world. Many of us have people in our life we love who are in this darkness. Who, like in verse 10, do not believe I've sinned. I don't need, like I, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not one of the bad people. They, like the younger son, we pray that they, like the younger son, will come to themselves. They'll realize, I don't need to eat the pods the pigs are eating. Here's what you can't do when a loved one is walking in darkness. You can't be the Holy Spirit for them. If the Holy Spirit won't force them to wise up, do you think you can? Do you think you have the, va- the vaguest possibility of convincing a person who is trying to resist the Holy Spirit that they really are? This is why when I, go out to, when I go out to witness, when I'm witnessing to somebody, I know I need to pray three times as long as whatever I'm going to say. And really, that, that's not, a, that's not a, a formula. It's just what comes to my mind. Because I know the biggest part of this is not mental, it's spiritual. I know on a Sunday morning when I preach that if people do not know the Lord, it's like preaching to dead people, speaking to them, come alive. If they can resist the Holy Spirit, they can resist you. So we pray. We plead the blood of Christ on them. The one thing that brings fellowship. We speak boldly. We speak lovingly. We don't allow that to break our joy, our fellowship but we pray for them. The verse Becca didn't read for you that really is the ending of this thought that John is bringing is in chapter 2. Now you're like, well, it's a different chapter. The chapters weren't there when it was written. In fact, it was probably one big block of text. So it flows into one another. I said before, it's like six couplets. So the third couplet starts in verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and and his word is not in us. Verse 1 of chapter 2, My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. This is the other half of the third couplet. In 10, if we sin, we, if, if sin isn't acknowledged, then the word is not in you, but sin is still very serious. Notice the familiarity, my little children. You have sinned, you still sin, but you have an advocate. And this lawyer doesn't do what your lawyer in court would do, pleading your innocence. No, he pleads your guilt, but he says there is no outstanding fee to be paid. It is paid in full. You are cleansed from all unrighteousness. Do you believe that? Or do you carry that weight with you today? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is righteous enough? That very last, very last Four words right here. Jesus Christ, the righteous. When we believe I continually have to earn my salvation, we are disagreeing with that right here. Jesus Christ is not the righteous. That I need to be righteous as well. His righteousness is not enough. But it is, even though sin is very serious. I write this to you that you may not sin. Because we can go to the other, we can go to the other extreme, right? Where we're just like, well, I'm a sinner. I might as well do what I want. God will, God will forgive me. And I just, have God, I just have to acknowledge it. That's also darkness. Our attitude towards sin should be serious, but not in despair because we have an advocate with the Father. We can walk in the light. By the way, worship team, would you please come up at this time? With each couple, we have, we have, we have the difference in rebellion versus obedience, light and darkness, life and death. So one, are you in the faith, really in the faith? Have you examined yourself to see if you're in the faith? Do you have an affection towards Jesus Christ or are you just trying to earn your salvation by coming to church? 
Do you truly have a tenderness with God outside of everything else? Speaking to a young man, and that's how I asked him. I didn't ask him, are you saved? I don't ask people, are you saved? I say, do you have a tenderness with Jesus Christ? That's a different question, isn't it? Because I'm not asking you, did you do a religious ceremony someplace, sometime, got conferred, got baptized, raised my hand in a meeting? Do you have a relationship with him? When you leave here tonight, when you're going about your daily life, or do you have a moment where you, where you have a moment where you're like, I love you, Lord. All these things in my life I consider nothing compared to knowing you. Are you in the faith? Have you examined yourself to see if you truly are in the faith? I just told you before, the people John's writing to, they think they're in the light. And John tells them, no, you're in darkness. Examine yourself. Two, if you are in the light, are you living a life, are you living a life free of confession? If so, you are not living the life that God meant you to live. We confess to each other so that we might be healed. Confess to each other so that you might be healed. That's not just physically, that's also spiritually. You know what happens as I confess to you, even from the lectern, and I say, hey, I messed up here. I'm healed because I remind myself that if I confess with my mouth, if I, if I confess, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I say it and I believe it. Three, do you believe that you are forgiven and cleansed? Or are you carrying that baggage with you? You know how many pastors are just, they're afraid to talk about things like sex or politics or things like that because there will be people in the congregation who are like, well, I've already messed up. Am I, am I, am I condemned? And that's really sad because to those people, it's like, do you believe you're cleansed? Are you truly in him? If you're truly in him, you are cleansed. Now, don't take sin lightly. It's very, very serious, but you have an advocate in heaven. During our last song here, it's our time to reflect on the message. Are you walking in the light? Do you have a desire to walk in the light? Are you in him? And if you are in him, are you living a life of confession where you are speaking the same as God? If you've sinned against somebody else, are you going to them and asking for forgiveness? And in all things, are you going to the Father and confessing, speaking the same as he does, so that you might remember that you can go to the throne of grace to receive mercy and grace. One thing I want to say as we're ending here, it's very easy to take this into a place of works righteousness, of no confidence in our salvation. That, oh man, I didn't confess today, so if I die, I'm going straight to hell, right? No, not at all. Do you understand is the metaphor that John is unfolding that you can fall into darkness even though you have a confidence in salvation. Don't take this as a, a works righteous thing that I have to confess every sin as I do it or God's going to condemn me. No, I have a confidence that, that Christ has truly saved me. But I also take sin very seriously. You know why? Because Christ has saved me. And I understand what my sin put Christ through. Would you please stand and sing our final song together?